Welcome back to another episode of the Into the Night Minute. Each week, Movies by Minutes hosts examine the 1985 John Landis-directed comedy Into the Night, one minute of screen time per episode. I'm Robert Black, but you can call me The Professor. I'm known around this city for my blog, The Groundhog Day Project, two recently completed podcasts, Michael Myers Minute and Dave Made a Minute, and the audacity to take on The Room Minute next. They say I obsess. I worry they may be right. I see an alleyway. A brief internet search suggests that it is in Van Nuys. And I want to know what alleyway. Does it have a name? What kind of criminal element chooses to linger nearby? These are the kinds of things you got to know in this business. For example, I see the sign on the wall on the right of this alleyway. Warning, armed guard and attack dogs on premises. And I take it to heart. But I also imagine that sign was set dressing. And the filmmakers just want to subconsciously put it into our heads that this might be a dangerous neighborhood. There's a lot of nondescript alleys and apartment buildings in Van Nuys. I'll get into the correction next minute, but this is not Van Nuys, I learned after I'd already started writing up my notes for these minutes. In my notes, I wrote, It's hard to be sure which one this is. I'm a detective. A movies-by-minutes detective. To give your average Joe off the street a minute of a film, he might tell you what he sees. But can he tell you what it means? Can he tell you who made it? Who's in it? And unlike a lot of folks you've been hearing or will hear on this show, I live in the City of Angels. I've walked the mean streets of Los Angeles in broad, smoggy daylight and the harsh street-like glow of night. I've driven these streets, these alleys. I've lived here my whole life, and I have no plans to leave. This is Minute 26. You've already been told, if you've made it this far, who these actors are in this car. A 1984 Toyota Corolla, by the way. I sometimes drive a Corolla. But nothing this old. This was filmed in 1984, so this car was new at the time. The actors. Our lead. Our protagonist. Our hero. Ed Oaken is played by Jeff Goldblum. He's driving the car. I didn't see this film back in the day. I wasn't familiar with Goldblum when this movie was on the big screen. A few months later, I'd see him in Silverado, though. Great film. Not the most beloved of American westerns, but one of my personal favorites because we owned it on VHS and watched it probably more times than it deserved to be watched. Goldblum didn't play a good guy in that one. But he seems like an okay guy here. The kind of guy who you trust to get you where you need to go late at night and you've only just met him. Next year, I'd see him vomiting on folks and slowly turning into a giant malformed fly in the remake of 1958's The Fly. And I would love it. It wasn't really a regular kid's film, but I wasn't really a regular kid. Then you got your vibes. Your Earth Girls are easy, though I might not have seen that one until it was on video. And since we're going to be talking about naked ladies this week on the Into the Night Minute, you realize the last time I saw a naked lady? it's worth mentioning that I saw the tall guy while on a family trip to England. 
And I don't know what most of you might call the sex scene in that one that takes place in part on the keyboard of a piano that, depending on how much of a prude you are, might deserve a little more respect than some folks bear behinds on it. But the family we were staying with in England called it the cheese on toast bit, because in one moment, Emma, it was this Goldblum fella and Emma Thompson, who at the time, I didn't know from Eve. Apparently it was her first film. She recalls in The Independent, November 16, 2018, quote, because it was a comedy sex scene, we were shagging on the piano. We were shagging in the breakfast things. There were shots of my arse with bits of toast stuck to it. Two f***ing days of being nude on set. The tall guy. I probably wouldn't have seen it if not for the lot of us, my parents, two of my sisters, and me. When sitting down with the Shadow family, a couple dependable parents, two fairly good teenage sons who certainly enjoyed their liquor, and a daughter I had a crush on because it's good for a boy of a certain age to have his crushes and to see folks having sex on pianos. But I was talking about Into the Night. You know how it is in this business, though. We're in the business of getting sidetracked. Which brings to mind Chance Harper. But how about a sidetrack that feels at least tangentially connected to the film at hand? Ed hasn't even stopped the car, for Christ's sake. And here I am rambling about cheese on toast. In the passenger seat is Michelle Pfeiffer as Diana, our femme fatale. I was familiar with this young lady which is a weird way to think of her. She had a quarter decade of life behind her when she made this film, and she was more than twice my age at the time. But I'm looking at her in this sequence today, and she's still 26. That's what I love about these actresses, man. I get older, they stay the same age. And there I go channeling Wooderson when I should be channeling Sam Spade or J.J. Giddis. I knew Michelle Pfeiffer at the time from Grease 2. A sequel that many think inferior to the original, but like the aforementioned Silverado, we had that one on VHS and watched it more than it deserved to be watched. And Michelle Pfeiffer was definitely one of my early cinematic crushes. And I'll talk more about her later this week, especially Minute 29, when we see a whole lot more of her. For now, we should stop lingering and get these young folks out of that Corolla. Or get sidetracked by the graffiti on the fence to the left because the one-two punch of that warning sign on the right and the possible gang tag on the left means this is not a good neighborhood. It's like mid-80s cinematic code. Never mind that they're parking in the alley behind the building instead of out on the street under real street lights or in some designated space. Diana asks Ed to walk her up to her place. And he's just met her, but she's dressed to the nines and she's rattled and asking him in. And it's the 80s. The swinging 70s are behind us, but AIDS hasn't completely frightened everyone away from casual sex just yet. Still, he isn't jumping at the opportunity. He's more of a gentleman. Plus, he has already turned the car off like he was going to walk her up without being prompted. Again, he's a gentleman. That's when male derelict interrupts to tell Ed he can't leave the car there. Before Diana can reassure Ed that he can indeed park in the alley, male derelict is played by Academy Award-winning screenwriter Waldo Salt. Something director John Landis does a lot in this film is cast cameos like this, other filmmakers. I read someplace that part of this was these other filmmakers supporting him after the accidental deaths of actor Vic Morrow and child extras Micah Din Lee and Renee Shin Yi Chen on the 1982 production of Twilight Zone the movie, which led to Landis being charged with involuntary manslaughter, and the trial was yet to come. Waldo Salt was nominated for the Academy Award for his work on 1973's Serpico and won for his work on 1969's Midnight Cowboy and 1978's Coming Home. His screenwriting career began uncredited with 1937's The Bride Wore Red, 
His usually cited first screenplay was for 1938's Shopworn Angel, a film that starred Margaret Sullivan and James Stewart. Of notable interest for me because I've dabbled in screenwriting in the spare time between teaching and parenting and podcasting and being a Hollywood know-it-all, Waldo Salt was blacklisted in 1951 when he refused to testify before the House Un-American Activities Committee. While blacklisted, he wrote for the British television series Robin Hood. Even there, blacklisted writer Ring Lardner Jr. explains in the Los Angeles Times 26th April 1992, quote, Each writer had a permanent name for receiving checks, and they had bank accounts under those names. You would register those names for Social Security, but the producers decided to put all sorts of names on the scripts because if one name appeared too frequently, the networks might get wind of what the producers were doing. The networks might want to see the writer. The producers didn't want that to happen. End quote. Salt, the son of a suicidal mother and a right-wing extremist father, was removed from the blacklist in 1962. But his first few films back, 1962's Terrace Bulba, 1964's Wild and Wonderful, and 1964's Flight from Ashaya, were disasters. Robert Hillman, director of the Academy Award-nominated Waldo Salt, A Screenwriter's Journey, explains, quote, At best, these are second-rate cult classics, but they did Waldo as much harm as the decade he spent being blacklisted as an artist. The blacklist stripped him of his reputation and effectively banned him from Hollywood, but the kitsch he wrote in the early 60s cost him his self-respect. End quote. Salt divorced his second wife, moved to New York, and plummeted into an emotional and financial abyss. Jerome Hellman, who worked with Salt on Midnight Cowboy, suggests that Salt's life experiences are what made him the great writer he would become. Quote, There isn't any question about it. It is a truism that we only learn from the tragedies, the errors, and the losses in our lives. Some people are destroyed by experiences like that. Waldo took the full force of life's blows. He grew and rose above them. End quote. Jennifer Salt, Waldo's daughter, counters. Quote, I don't believe he became a good writer because he suffered. I think he was a person who, despite the blacklist, or if there had never been a blacklist, would have found his stride. He was a real artist. End quote. Waldo died in March of 1987, aged 72 years. Lung cancer. Male derelict says Ed can't leave the car there in that alleyway. Diana reassures Ed that he can. And female derelict insists they'll tow you away. Female derelict is played by Viola Kate Stimson. Born in 1906, the middle of ten children, Stimson was a dancer and a chorus girl in the 1920s, then became a stage actress. She was what we now call a non-traditional student when she went back to college in 1951 and became a schoolteacher. She retired from teaching in 1971 and she turned to acting on the big screen and small. Her last credited role was Good Morning Miami in 2002. Her Los Angeles Times obituary says she continued to take calls from her agent until age 95. Notably, she appeared in 1986's Star Trek IV The Voyage Home and was the longest-lived Star Trek actor until Alan Abertini Dow surpassed her. Stimson was the first to reach age 100. Stimson died at home in Tarzana in January of 2008, aged 101 years. Tarzana is in the valley. We'll talk more about the valley next minute. Together, they look like a nice old homeless couple. And behind them, there's a pile of trashed furniture. At least one couch, a mattress, at least one chair. Diana tells Ed not to worry about it. Second 21, cut to. Interior, Jack's boat, night. Angle on bar. These four guys are credited as Savak, 
an acronym for Sazamene Itilat Va Amniate Keshvar, Persian for Organization of National Intelligence and Security of the Nation, basically Iranian secret police. This first one is played by Barus Karimian. I'm going to be a little more specific than just Savak. Savak Barus, he stands behind a nice bar setup. As we cut to him, he's grabbing a bottle of Jack Daniels and he tosses it casually behind him at the shelves of glass. He has a revolver in his left hand, but that hand is resting on the edge of the bar. Second 22, angle on couch. Savak Michael, Michael Zan, sits on the arm of a cabriole couch. His gun aimed past girl on boat, Sue Bowser, at Larry, Jake Steinfeld. But his eyes are angled downward. Girl on boat and Larry both sit shirtless. She has her hands over her breasts. He reminds me of Joe Piscopo. The pillow on the couch matches the curtains. And I want there to be some play on the carpet matching the drapes there. But I just can't make it fit. That's what she said. No time! But she did. No time! Guys, get on this! Second 23, angle on shelves. Savakadi, Hadi Sajadi, pulls books off the shelves. The only immediately identifiable items on the shelves are a game of Chinese checkers and a copy of the book Stranger at Wildings by Madeline Brent. That book is, quote, the story of a spirited young woman of 18 who has left an unhappy, uncertain past in England and made a new life for herself as a trapeze artist in a small touring circus. But that forgotten past will stumble upon her one day. It will come in the form of a mysterious young man, handsome, appealing, yet curiously remote, whose appearance is the beginning of a strange, dangerous intrigue that involves deception, romance, disappearance, and, in the end, the revelation of a family's darkest secrets. End quote. I'm not saying that book is part of the set decoration on purpose to offer a subconscious reference for the few who have read the book and also see into the night anyway. But you find meaning wherever you can find meaning, or the world becomes a very dark and lonely place. We can see the bed here, and the blanket matches those curtains, and that pillow on the couch. Second 25, another angle, Savak Barus, using his right hand which now holds his gun, empties an octagonal metal box. What looks like maybe boxes of matches fall out and then down out of frame. He tosses the empty box aside. Second 27, angle on Larry. He looks like he might be getting angry. And again, reminds me of Joe Piscopo. Angle on Savik John. This one, with his back to us, is director John Landis. I wouldn't have really known who he was in 1985. Not that I saw this movie then, of course. But I had seen a few of his films already. An American Werewolf in London. Trading Places. Twilight Zone the movie. And I'd see many more of his later on. He'd also write 17 episodes of Dream On, a show I loved. Savak John stands near a cabinet with a small railing, a TV with external speakers on the sides, in front of a porthole. He tosses magazines toward camera without turning around. Second 29, wider angle on bar, Savak Barus has turned his attention back to the bar. He throws a chair over it into the shelves of glasses. And I gotta remind myself that they're tossing the place to find something or tossing the place to be threatening or both. Because all that glass and books and magazines all over the floor are just going to get in the way. These chairs match the curtains, by the way. Close, on Girl on Boat. She winces and makes a hard-to-describe sound. It ain't a whimper. It ain't a squeal. It definitely ain't a scream, but you know she's not taking this situation very well. Second 30, wider angle on Savik John. He's still tossing magazines, but now we can see that there's a grand piano next to him. And at least one chair that matches the spotted, ruddy color of the couch, in addition to the chairs that match the curtains. And the geography is becoming more obvious. Porthole and TV are aft. Though we cannot see it in the shot, the bed is to our left, starboard from the TV. The piano is port. The bar is forward. The couch with Larry and girl on boat is on the starboard side. Second 31. I pause to write some notes and notice that one of the magazines Savik John tosses has an ad for Merit cigarettes on the back. 
and I think that's an old-school remote control sitting on top of the piano. Second 32, close on light fixture. Something strikes and breaks a bulb, the fixture just left of the bar. Generic electricity sound effect that doesn't quite fit the visual. I've broken a light bulb or two in my day, and you get more of a popping sound. The rest of the scene has, of course, regular breaking glass. Even when we are not angled on anything breaking. Close on shelves. Savakadi is still going through and tossing aside books, but I'm noticing the weird mix of shots, wide shots, and narrow shots. There's no progression, wider to narrower, narrower to wider. But there does seem to be a pattern to it. And if I could crack the pattern, maybe I could love this film. I don't love this film. The first time I watched it, I wasn't even sure that I liked it. I could appreciate it. And all of the various filmmaker cameos amused me. Like the mix of shots in the scene, the books on the shelves also seem barely organized, with no clear rhyme to their placement. A copy of the novel The Spike by Robert Moss, which deals in a Soviet plot for global supremacy by 1985, is just a book away from a book with the partial title of Your Own Something and another that is the guide to something that feel more like self-help, or at least non-fiction books. There's a copy of a book called Free Schools next to a copy of An Ever-Changing Place, A Year Among Snow Monkeys and Sherpas in the Himalayas. Second 35, we've got a continuity problem for sure and a silly prop thing in the same shot. The continuity problem, that bookshelf that Savakadi is messing with, is at the left of this shot, but the books are arranged differently. The silly prop thing, Savak John rams a marlin into the television, but the marlin clearly has no face, which I'm not sure why they would make the prop marlin that way. Second 36, close on TV as the marlin hits the TV. One of the speakers has fallen off the set and the brand is readable. Tatung. Established in 1918 and apparently quite famous for making rice cookers, until they started making color TVs in the late 60s. Has gotten into green technology and seems to have an entire university, which in 2009 had the first wireless broadband network ever built on a campus. And I don't think I'd heard of the brand until just now. Pausing on the faceless Marlin. Second 36, angle on Savik Michael and girl on boat. He's still staring at her body. She's still covering her breasts. And she reacts noticeably again to the destruction going on around her. Although if my take on the geography of the room is correct, she's not looking at the marlin hitting the television. That should be more to her left. Second 37, close on Larry. He turns his head like he's eyeing Savak Michael. Second 38, close on Bar. A glass container is smashed down onto the bar and pixie sticks go everywhere. Angle on bedroom. Shelves. Savak John, his back still to the camera, goes down the steps to where Savak Hadi is still going through books. Second 39, close on shelves behind Bar. A bottle shatters against the mirror. Second 40, bedroom. Savak John tosses pillows from the bed as Savak Hadi examines a couple more books. Second 43, Savak Michael and Girl on Boat. Slowly, Savak Michael reaches down to touch Girl on Boat. Second 45, wider angle. Weird edit. Savak Michael touches the thigh of Girl on Boat. Larry has finally had too much. He starts to get up from the couch, but Savak Michael raises his gun and gets up himself. Larry sits back down. Second 52, close on Savak Michael. The reflected light on the ceiling behind him confirms the bar is where I figured. Which means the reaction shot from Girl on Boat fits better with the bar destruction than how it was timed with the marlin hitting the television. Second 54, reverse shot. Looking down the barrel at Larry. Second 55, reverse shot. Savak Michael raises the gun and brings it down to hit Larry with it instead of shooting him. Foley sound. And smash cut to. Interior hallway. Diane leads the way. Ed follows. The music almost sounds like a pained reaction to the hit that preceded the cut. A baby cries. 
Diane stops at the door to apartment 22. Ed moves behind her as she gets out her keys, and the minute ends. That is all for Minute 26. Incidental music was Some of My Fears by Daisy May. Available on freemusicarchive.org under your Creative Commons non-commercial share-alike license. Once again, I'm Robert Black. Some folk call me the professor. Check out lemmingdrops.com to see all the stuff I've been up to, including my latest podcast, The Room Minute. You can find the Into the Night podcast on iTunes and Google Play, or check out nightminute.com. Follow at Night Minute on Twitter or join us on Facebook in the King Lives Listener's Limo. Join us again here next time on the Into the Night Minute. Do we thank you or what? I'd say I fall in the or what category.